Jenny and I are grateful to be here with y'all. Uh, we don't often practice arranged marriages in this culture, uh, but I guess the session has kind of set us up, uh, me and you, for a, a time. Uh, but I hear that through, uh, or in these arranged marriages, commitment, through the commitment, love actually grows over time, and blessings come from that uh, commitment and that love, and as uh, you and I are committed to each other in, in so many ways now, uh, I trust that love will grow and blessings are going to come here too, since, after all, you and I are already united in Christ and by the, the bond of the Spirit that He has given to us. So, let's, let's together turn our attention now to the Word of our Lord. Our passage today comes from Luke chapter 20. We'll be looking at verses 19 through 26. Now, like most cultures, we usually honor the rights of an owner. We know better than to trespass on a farmer's field. We, I, I mean, I really doubt that you're in the habit of breaking and entering into your neighbor's homes. We're still trying to teach our two-year-old to respect his brother's Lego creations. It's, it's a bit of a challenge. But what about God's rights as owner, as creator? Do we give that enough thought? Well, here in Luke 20, Jesus continues to teach us about what it means to live in this world that God has made, giving the Creator His due. Let's pray as we turn our attention to God's Word. Father, You you have blessed us by giving us this Word, by revealing Your will to us. And Father, Your revealed will is that is that we would believe in the one that you have sent. Father, help us today to see and to hear Jesus as he speaks to us in his words, so that we may rightly give you your due. We pray this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Luke 20, verses 19 to 26. And the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him, At that very hour, you remember this is following on the heels of the parable of the wicked tenants that they perceived was told about them. At that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, last week you did hear the parable of the wicked tenants. Jesus tells a story about men who refused to give the vineyard owner his due, that fruit that belonged to him. They even killed his son in a vain effort to seize control for themselves. Jesus, remember, was telling the story of Israel's past. And he was telling the story of Israel's present as the people on the whole were rejecting God as their king and and as the religious leaders were even rejecting Jesus in that very moment, the son that was sent. That comparison was not lost on the religious leaders. We see here that they immediately recognized Jesus was talking about them. Verse 19 shows the fury building in them as only their fear of the people restrained them from laying their hands on Jesus. And so, what do angry people do? They hide their anger. And here in this scene of pretend discipleship and a tricky question, Jesus sees in the leaders a craftiness. I thought that was an interesting word. Craftiness is what is used to describe The serpent in the garden, the one who spoke to Eve. It's the kind of craftiness that tries to trip up. The craftiness that asks questions, not really concerned about the answer, only that the answerer is trapped. There is a cleverness, old wisdom says, that is detestable. And we see such a dark craftiness in these questioners who flattered Jesus while desiring his death at the same time. And so in verse 22, they ask this question, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Now, the tribute that they're talking about was a poll tax that the Romans had imposed on the people. The Jews resented it deeply, and not just because nobody ever liked paying taxes, They resented it because the tax was a symbol for them of the occupation of the promised land by these pagan Gentiles, these filthy goyim. And adding insult to injury, the coin, the denarius that was used to pay the tax, bore on one side the image of Caesar himself with this inscription, Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. The other side held the image of the goddess of peace, with another of Tiberius's titles, high priest. To the Jews, the tax and the very coin itself that they had to carry in their pockets, bearing these blasphemous images... It was deeply offensive to God himself as Caesar claimed divinity and claimed also the right to the people's worship. Now we know the purpose behind that crafty question. We see it in verse 20. They are trying to catch Jesus in his words, saying something that would give the Roman governor, who happens to be Pontius Pilate, Reason to dispose of Jesus. You know that the Romans didn't abide any talk that disparaged their power or position. But on the other hand, the Jewish people hated the Roman rulers. 
And they would not follow a teacher, one of their own rabbis, who would affirm Roman rule. And so the religious leaders think that they have Jesus sitting on the horns of a dilemma by asking the question, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? They're hoping Jesus is going to say either yes or no. If he says yes, then the Jewish people are going to hate him and they're going to leave him. But if he says no, then the governor will see Jesus as a rebel and he will do what the Romans do so well to rebels. But when Jesus asked them to show him a denarius, he's beginning to answer their question. But he's doing it by demonstrating something self-evident. Those who use Caesar's coinage, as one writer puts it, are under obligation to pay back what is owing him. If you're going to work and trade in Caesar's world, it's as if Jesus is saying, then you've got to give Caesar his due. But then Jesus goes beyond the original question, and he's not merely providing a wise answer to get him out of a tight spot. Jesus is going for the heart of hearers, then and now, revealing that people have a parallel debt to God. When he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, Jesus is inviting us today to remember that we too bear an image on us. The image of the one who made us in the beginning. And as creatures carrying in ourselves the In our persons, the image of God, we must respect the rights of the Creator. And so understanding this, it makes perfect sense for this passage to follow on the heels of the parable of the wicked tenants. The owner there in that parable was looking for a return. He was looking for the fruit of the vineyard that belonged to him. And here, Jesus, I believe, is emphasizing that point and he's pressing it further. To show that those who bear his image, as those who bear his image, we ought to honor God by giving him his due. And so our first question is to simply ask, what does it look like to give God his due? Last week, Philip said the fruit of the vineyard, which the owner is seeking, is the obedience of faith. Love for God and neighbor, doing justice, loving mercy, walking humbly with God. That's immensely helpful for us here in this passage as it reminds us that there is both a vertical and a horizontal dimension to what we give. First, we owe God our whole self. And second, we owe others a proper reflection of God. First, we owe God our whole self. And second, we owe others a proper reflection of God. First, giving God his due means giving him our whole selves. When Jesus was asked at another time, which is the greatest commandment, he summed up the first table of the law with this. And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. Our love in that total way is his due. 
And while it may seem cold and demanding to some, I would argue that for God to demand that as his due, and for that to seem cold, is is only because that person can't possibly know the God of the Bible as Augustine prays to him, the best of all beings. To come to know the good and the lovely and the perfect character of this God is to love Him and then to willingly give our whole self up to Him. To love God in this way is to set our affections on Him alone. To give Him an undivided love rather than serving others ahead of Him. To love God is to enjoy who He is, not just as an idea or as an ideal, but in His persons. Enjoying the Father who has loved us and created us as His image bearers. We delight in the Son who reigns over all and who gave Himself up as a sacrifice. We love and we praise the Spirit who is the Lord of life, who applies the work of Christ to us and unites us to Christ in an unbreakable bond. And to love Our trying God is to offer to Him a joyful obedience such that the commands that He gives to us are no longer burdensome, but it's actually a delight to fulfill them. As Christ said Himself, if you love Me, you will keep My commandments. This is not the obedience of a slave hoping to escape the lash, but the obedience of a creature who sees the good hand of His Creator, who provides more abundantly than all that we ask or need or imagine, and loves to hear His voice. Love is so much of this vertical component component of giving God His due. But we are also invited to look toward each other as well. Because secondly, giving God His due means reflecting God faithfully to others. That is, giving other people a proper reflection of God. Just as Jesus said, the greatest commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. He said that a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that tells us that there is no true love of God that will also be shown to others. This neighbor love is seen when we reflect the very character of God toward others, especially, especially, especially to those who don't deserve it. When to our children, our parents... Our bosses, our employees, our teachers, our students. When to them we image God's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Then we are ultimately giving God his due. Because he desires us to imitate him as his beloved children. I would say that we are living out 
this love for God and others, giving God His due in our callings and in our vocations, when we do honest work for honest pay, He is glorified in the house painter's well-cut lines and the beautiful hues that make a home feel more welcoming. We give God His due with our money when we share what we have out of gratitude for all God has given us. Biblically, joyful generosity toward others is one of the hallmarks of true worship of God. We give God His due with our bodies when we submit ourselves to God's revealed will for our human sexuality. It was He who made us sexual beings And it was also he that created the boundary of marriage between a man and a woman to protect that gift. And so we give God his due when we flee temptation in this area, seeking to honor God with our bodies. This is the very context for Paul's words. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. That is his due. This kind of giving ourselves to God and others in a free and joyful way. You understand, this is how you were made to live. This is... This kind of life is real life. Life as it was meant to be. And as Jesus expresses this in this text, not as a wish, but as a command... He's helping us understand that it's still in force today. But now we have to wrestle with this second question. So why don't we live this way? Why do we find it so hard to love God with 100% of our hearts? Why do our souls so easily run after other loves? Why is it that our affections are so easily given to other things? Why is my love for others so weak? Back to this passage, why don't we see the religious leaders in Jesus' day giving God his due by loving the Son whom the Father had sent? It's actually a point of dark irony in this passage that the religious leaders, those who claim full devotion to God, weren't really acting that way. I want you to notice two things in this passage, and I think they help us understand why it is that we struggle sometimes to give God his due. First, who were the leaders afraid of? Look at verse 19. What fear dominated them? Not the fear of God, but the fear of people. When we live more concerned with what men think than what God thinks, then we won't be able to give God his due. But look at verse 20, and you'll see this other ironic twist in the story. The Jews hated the tax. The Jews hated the Romans. But who are these religious leaders actually sort of eager to please, eager to submit themselves to? They eagerly pay tribute to the authority of Pilate, the governor, by seeking to offer Jesus up to him. They are serving ultimately the idol of power. 
of control. They have the desire to shape their world according to what seems right to them. When we love power and control more than God's power and control, then we won't be giving God His due. Maybe today you just don't believe the claim that there is a God whose image you bear. Maybe... Maybe you choose to believe the doctrine of the day that makes a counterclaim for humanity's full autonomy. There were two people long ago who went that way, who believed that they could be like God too. Only when they tried did they discover that they had become slaves of a much darker, much less loving power. It's like the modern sage Bob Dylan wrote, still, you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. But maybe you do believe that we were made in God's image. And while you desire to honor that, you're coming to terms with the fact that you, like me, haven't. Maybe you see areas in your life, your vocation, your sexuality, your money, where you haven't given God His due. Maybe you're wrestling with the fact that you haven't always loved God with a hundred percent of your heart and soul, mind and strength. Maybe your love really is more easily given to other things, even good things like your family. Yet you don't give it all to the best of all beings. Maybe for you that's a problem of misplaced love. Maybe it's a problem of misplaced hopes. Expecting some other thing to make your life the way that you feel it's supposed to be. Maybe it's a problem of compartmentalization. Where we want to give God his due in some areas of our lives but not others. Maybe maybe we're afraid of what's going to happen. When we yield up that one area of control that we've clung to for so long. But I would remind you of something else that Philip said last week. In one sense, the parable he spoke of is Jesus' answer to the so-called lordship debate. People ask, can you have Jesus as your savior without having him as your lord? Jesus' clear answer is no. If you will not receive the king... You will not receive the kingdom. So people, for people like you and people like me, people who recognize that we don't always give God his due, where is there room for hope for us? Here, I want you to recognize something that is often easily missed. I want you to recognize that it is a good and loving thing For Jesus to show us the ways that we fail to render God his due. Because God will not tolerate being robbed of his due forever. And sin has made cosmic thieves of us all. But against the dark backdrop of our sin, the grace of Jesus shines all the brighter as the gospel tells us that what we owe to God and did not pay, could not pay back. Jesus 
paid in full himself when he died for cosmic thieves between two thieves. You understand, that's what is coming so very soon in Luke's gospel. Soon, the religious leaders would have their way and they would offer Jesus up to Caesar through Pilate. But the gospel tells us that the one who is the true image of God, the exact imprint of his nature, Hebrews tells us, Jesus, the Son of God, offered himself up as a ransom to God for his people. He gave himself up in our place so that by faith in him, God receives us as faithful. In the gospel, God tells us that although we have failed to give our worship to him and live faithfully as his, his people, Jesus did not fail. It is Jesus alone who loved God with a hundred percent of his heart and soul and mind and strength. It's Jesus alone who truly loved his neighbor, you, as himself. And although we owe to God an infinite double debt for both the love that we owed to him and the sin that we committed instead, the gospel assures us that God himself paid that double debt in Christ. And having satisfied all we owe by his death on the cross, our resurrected and ascended Lord stands now before the throne of God as our surety, as the guarantor and the promise of payment fully made and accepted. Jesus then, Jesus then is our living hope. And the good news of his faithfulness, his satisfaction of our debt becomes the foundation then of our freedom and a new life in him. It is Jesus himself who leads us back to God, not to cower in fear, fearing that debt must still be satisfied, but rather Jesus leads us back to the Father and in light of his mercies, urges us to present ourselves not as dead sacrifices, but as living sacrifices in Christ. As you rest in Christ alone and receive him as your own, already the scriptures say you are a holy sacrifice. You are an acceptable sacrifice to him. And to you, he has given his spirit to empower you more and more to give God his due in every area of your life. Loving him fully and loving others freely. He leads us into that free and joyful life as it was meant to be, where all that we have and all that we are from our works to our words, from our money to our very bodies become ways of worshiping our triune God, the best of all beings. And we're freed to give to God his due, even, even if it still cost us dearly. Because the ancient city of Pergamum was the capital of Asia, it was the administrative home of the Roman governor. Roman governors were divided into two categories, those who had the right of the sword and those who didn't. Those who had the right of the sword literally had the power of life and death. On their word, a person could be executed on the spot. 
The one who had this office in Pergamum had this right of the sword. And at any moment in the time of the first century, he could use it against the church. And apparently he used it against a Christian named Antipas. John Stott describes the probable scene this way. It's not hard to reconstruct the scene which probably saw the death of Antipas. Known to be a Christian, he was summoned before the governor of the province. This civil leader was also a chief priest of the imperial cult. And a bust of Caesar was set on a pedestal and a sacred fire burned before it to sacrifice to the emperor, the genius of Rome and the divine emperor was really a simple matter. All a person had to do was to sprinkle a few grains of incense on the fire and say, Kurios Kaisar, which means Caesar is Lord. And he would be released. But how could Antipas deny Christ's name and faith? Had he not at his baptism been proud to affirm his faith? Had he not also at his baptism been proud to affirm his faith in these simple, revolutionary, world-changing words? Curios Jesus. Jesus is Lord. Had he not been instructed that God had exalted Jesus to his own right hand and set him far above all principality and power and every name that is named and given him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Had not his teachers assured him that to say Jesus is Lord is a sign of the Holy Spirit's inspiration. Whereas no man can say, Jesus be cursed when speaking by the Spirit. Such thoughts of these will have invaded the mind of Antipas as his Christian faith was exposed to its supreme test. Whether he wavered or not, we don't know. All we know is that he was given more grace to stand firm, to hold fast Christ's name and not to deny Christ's faith. He would indeed render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. He would offer his neck to the sword. But he would also render to God the things that are God's. And he could not bring himself to give Caesar the title that belonged to Christ. Christ was his Lord, not Caesar even if it meant his death. And it did mean his death. Church, we are called to be living sacrifices. There may be times when that means our death. But you understand the harder sacrifices are usually the ones that we survive. But seeing Jesus as the faithful one who offered himself up to God in our place, it frees us. He frees us to give ourselves body and soul to God as his due. Because we know him as our comfort in life and in death. We know that we belong to him, purchased by his blood. We know that we can give ourselves to God without reservation because in Christ... He first gave himself to us. Let's pray.
Father, we praise you for the gospel of our Lord that tells us, assures us that what we have failed to offer up to you, Jesus Christ offered faithfully. The Lamb without blemish, the one who lived the righteous life that we did not, who died the death that we feared to die. Father, we praise you for the gift of Christ. And I praise you for the gift of faith that you have given to your people. Father, strengthen our faith in the Son so that, Father, we might more and more freely and joyfully present ourselves to you as living sacrifices. Accept now, the Father, Father, the fruit of our lips, the praise of your name, as we sing the songs of Christ our Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.